O Lord, open my lips that I may proclaim your message. Amen. So over the summer, I'm sure many of you enjoyed a good holiday read. I think these months are the perfect time to become engrossed in a long book, or maybe to allow yourself to be transported to a different time and place. And as a church, our collective read has been the book of Acts that tells the story of Jesus' followers in the years after his death. How they spread the message of Christianity throughout the Mediterranean against a background of persecution and hostility. And I think Luke clearly writes his account as a story. And I imagine him being forced to select from a wide range of events to squeeze into the format of a short book. And I think he intends to tell us a gripping tale with surprising twists to keep the reader alert. And in any story, there must be turning points, moments of drama to keep the reader interested and alive. And here in chapter 15, we come to what authors might call the midpoint twist. Now, the idea of a midpoint twist is to keep the story from sagging. There's a need to keep things moving along, to avoid stagnation. And writers and novel writers often work hard to include some sort of plot or some twist in a plot midway through the book to keep the reader on their toes. And here in Acts 15, the twist is presented as a conundrum or a dilemma. We find ourselves back in Antioch, and Antioch is this rich, multicultural community of which a great number of non-Jews have come to faith in Jesus. And they're sharing life together as one, Jews and Gentiles joining in common meals and seemingly getting along great. The non-Jewish believers who've come to faith are not keeping the Jewish laws and strict customs, such as circumcision. In fact, Paul and Barnabas have been teaching them they don't have to. A person can only be right with God on the basis of what God has done, or what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. Not keeping rules or the law. And now comes the twist. We read, some Jews came from Judea to Antioch and said, well, actually, these Christians can't belong to Yahweh unless they're circumcised. What you, Paul and Barnabas, are doing is completely wrong, and it needs to stop. So we have a problem, and it causes considerable uproar and dispute between all parties involved. A major diplomatic incident we might call it. And unable to agree in Antioch, they depart to Jerusalem to get the biggest, most significant voices in the early church to give their opinion. So they gather everyone, including Peter and James, and debate the issue. Peter stands up and he says he's witnessed the Gentiles coming to faith by grace and they don't need the burden of the law for salvation 
Paul and Barnabas weigh in and share what's happened among the Gentiles on their journey, confirming Peter's statement that they don't need to keep the law. Then James, James comments that what the previous speakers have said fits with the prophecy of the Old Testament that the Gentiles would be brought into God's kingdom. Then he suggests the Gentiles don't need to become obedient to all the Old Testament laws to be included in the church. But he does suggest they abstain from four things. Food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. So the issue is resolved, and they send Paul and Barnabas off to the Gentile believers with a letter explaining this. And the letter is read in Antioch, and there's much rejoicing. It's clear that Jews and Gentiles can now live in peace together under Christ. Last month when I was speaking, I said, the surface argument and dispute is not often what the issue is really about. And I think this is more than about circumcision and the law of Moses. The argument boils down to, must a Gentile, before becoming a Christian and be embraced into the Christian community, follow the rules of the Jews, i.e. become a Jew? And the stakes are high. The parties couldn't just agree to disagree because this issue goes to the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This was an issue that went to the very foundation of this new movement based on Christ. And for Paul and Peter, it was a red line. And the question that was explored in the Council of Jerusalem was immense. Are Christians made right with God by faith alone or by a combination of faith and obedience to the law of Moses? Is the work of Jesus by itself enough to bring salvation? Or must we add to Jesus' work in order to be made right with God? These were problems that needed to be resolved. And the dialogue wasn't easy. But in the end, the church took a decision there should be no difference between Jew and Gentile. And the important thing was that believers were made right with God by faith alone. So what does all this mean? And how does it speak into our context here in South Belfast today? where statistically most men here are already uncircumcised, and most of us regularly enjoy a full Ulster fry with all sorts of unrichly clean foods in it. And just let me share some thoughts as I've reflected on this passage. How might this apply to us personally? When I was a teenager, I could have won a prize for the number of times I became a Christian. I had more conversions than Johnny Sexton. And many Sunday nights at a gospel meeting, I would have put my hand up and prayed, 
what was described as the sinner's prayer. And I felt great. However, I would find myself the next week doing exactly the same thing and then the next week and the next week and maybe the next. And as I look back on this, often it was out of fear. I think thinking about hell and fire do that to teenagers. But inevitably, by the end of another week, I'd done something that made me think I'd fallen out of relationship with God and I converted again. Often this was a result of thinking about those hot sins, of looking at things, consuming things, going places I shouldn't. I'd broken the laws, broken the code, deviated from the expected behavior. I felt felt fear and guilt and repented. Don't let me be mistaken. Acknowledging and repenting for our wrongdoings is a good thing. It's something we've done today in our service. However, what hadn't dawned on me as a teenager was that salvation didn't depend on my behavior. My salvation was a total gift from God. We don't earn it from our actions or refraining from certain activities. Only God, in his grace, restores us to right relationship with him. It's a one-off event, and these endless and repeated conversions were unnecessary. And in fact, they diminished the true power of salvation. Salvation is utterly dependent on God, not us. As Christians, we have a tendency to make up rules, set expectations around behavior where God has given grace. And if you're like me, one of the reasons I need to hear the message of the gospel constantly is because I can easily slip into self-salvation mode. I think I can save myself by what I do, but I can't. How might this passage speak to us collectively as a church and as a community of faith? I think in Northern Ireland we spend a lot of time assessing others and their faith. And there can be a tendency to believe God is only found by our group, our tribe. Maybe to think other denominations aren't really Christians. I remember walking through a county down village one bank holiday. It was a busy day, and the local church had put up a bouncy castle in their grounds to attract children. As Rosa bounced, an older man saddled up to me, and it suddenly dawned on me the bouncy castle was really a bit of bait, and I'd been hooked. I knew where the conversation was going, a gentle start. His casual opening question, had I come far? Where did I live? My job? And then gently segueing into, was I a Christian? Yes, I said. Where do you go, brother? He asked. The Church of Ireland in Beaver. 
clearly the wrong answer. (laughs) As he continued for the next 10 minutes to share the need for me to be properly saved, to be born again, and to invite Jesus into my heart. And he had a picture of exactly what a Christian was and how they should describe what they are. And unfortunately, I didn't fit the bill. And I joke, but I must also be careful. I must be careful not to draw castigations against other Christians because they worship in a different way or maybe have a different theological emphasis. Must extend the grace to them and allow differences to exist and not assume we have all the answers as well. I was taken by surprise two years ago to read an article online written by the Christian Union in McGee College, Derry. And the article claimed that less than 1% of the student body at McGee were Christians. As an alumni of the college, this didn't stack up for me. Now, 20 years had passed since I'd graduated But whilst I was there, there was a significant number of Christians amongst the student body. The statistics quoted didn't ring true for me. So in my typical form, I wrote to them to find out how they got their figures of less than 1%. And the reply was the 1% was based on the numbers who come to their Christian meetings. And as the conversation moved on, For them, Christians were only those who embraced their particular brand of evangelical Protestant Christianity. No room for diversity. Dismissing of anyone who might identify as Catholic or in the context of a multinational university, Greek, Orthodox, Lutheran, Quaker. After the conversation, they said they'd remove the online article. But two years later, it's still there. One of the rawest expressions of church I've encountered was when I worked for a Christian drug and homeless project in Edinburgh. The church connected to the centre was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. Thick clouds of tobacco smoke hung in the air as you entered. Others rolled up cigarettes during the sermon. The dress code was largely tracky bottoms, and people maybe popped outside for a midway fag, or talked throughout, took phone calls. I remember one guy doing somersaults. He was so enthused by the music. It was a great place to go. Many of the people had just come to faith, and they hadn't gone through the finishing school of what a Christian is meant to look like. And thank the Lord no one had got to them yet to tell them how they were meant to behave. They were comfortable being their real selves, not being someone that they weren't. Thomas Merton in his book, Seeds of Contemplation, writes, how created things give glory to God simply by being who they were created to be. He writes, a tree gives glory to God by being a tree, for in being what God means it to be, is obeying him. 
What might Acts 15 mean for the global church? Underpinning this whole account in Acts is the need for unity. The young fledging church is in danger of splitting. And this was completely unacceptable to Paul. Avoiding fractures was vitally important. And to prevent it meant tough talking. And tough talking is what they did in Jerusalem. And in the end, a parting of the ways was averted. But as so often happens, when you get over one crisis, there's another one waiting round the corner. Is, not, is this not the same for us as the global church? Debates linger on, new ones emerge as culture changes and years roll by. Wasn't long ago people fought over holding to a literal view or literal translation of the Bible. Other arguments have included who can be baptised, what books should make up the scriptures, can Christians go to dances or a pub, can they drink alcohol? In the 80s and 90s, the church argued over the ordination of women, who can receive communion, what actually happens during the Eucharist. And a hot topic of today is around sexuality. The role those in the LGBTQ community can have in church life. And in my opinion, this won't, as some believe, be the debate to end all debates in the church. We as the body of believers will continually have to work out where we stand on all sorts of questions in the future. In the next decade, we'll be challenged further around end-of-life care, assisted dying. We'll be challenged around what genetic choices can parents make to be allowed to make about their future children. We'll have to work out what role and level of influence artificial intelligence should be allowed to play in our society and our lives. We'll never exhaust the questions and dilemmas an evolving culture like ours will throw up for us. And we'll need to continually find new patterns and responses to new situations and tensions. Jesus passionately prayed that his followers would be one and would be brought to complete unity. Unity isn't an optional extra. It's something we can never give up on. Statistics suggest there are more than 45,000 Christian denominations in the world. And by my reckoning, many people here today will have driven past up to 10 different churches on their way to this service. So we don't need any more. The more fractured we are, the more we become meaningless to the world. The more united in love, the more the world sees Christ. In the words of St. Francis of Assisi, Lord, make us instruments of your peace. 
Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Amen.